0: Welcome to hashtag real estate. Last week, Tanya Hafan and Gary Palmer unpacked ways in which investors can secure finance for their first investment property. This week, we take a look at property development. Stay tuned.
1: Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Hashtag Real Estate. I'm Deborah Homa Foddy of TM Group. And I'm Samae
2: Zake. Now, with the trend of buyers opting for new properties, developers are seen to be moving to fill the gaps in the market.
1: In the recent years, buyers have shown a strong preference of these development properties. But as with any property investment, there are pros and cons, choosing a property development over an existing one.
0: With the demand for affordable property on the rise due to rapid urbanization and changing housing trends, property development and investing has become an increasingly attractive arena for entrepreneurs both locally and abroad. Property development involves a wide range of activities and processes, from purchasing land to building and developing facilities. Central Developments Property Group has a particular focus on the residential property development space, offering investors a variety of delicacies from security estates, rental developments to retirement estates.
3: Various um, projects on the go at the moment. Um, Normal security estates, uh, sectional title, um, fairly medium to high density developments. And then um, we're busy with a mega retirement village in um, uh, Randberg. And then we're also planning on a new retirement village at Waterclub um, in Pretoria. Investing on a new development, a new build, uh, from directly from a developer, um, in my opinion, is definitely better than investing in normal uh, residential property. The advantage is it's, it's a new build, so it's, it's newly constructed um, and you've also got the advantage of not paying transfer fees or, or, or registration fees, because the developer normally includes that. Most developers are registered for VAT, so it's a VAT transaction. So you already have got a bit of um, capital gain due to the fact that there's no extra costs. If an investor buys in a new development, Um, then there is normally no extra additional cost apart from the purchase price of the property. Technology is becoming more and more important. Together with that is energy uh, efficiency. Um, And yes, there is a cost involved, um, but if you buy in a development with scale, obviously it becomes cheaper. Um, The demand for fibre connections and those kind of technology is actually compulsory these days. It's, it's part of what you need to do. The consumer wants it, but due to scale, the cost to the investor is actually minimal. But the value that is added due to the fact that it's there is definitely to the investor's advantage. We've developed 12 retirement villages, um, and we're busy with our 13th, and we found in recent years, that due to the low supply and high demand, the investment value in a retirement village outperforms normal residential. Um, and we find more and more investors opt to invest in our retirement villages rather than the normal uh, security estates. In the retirement uh, sector, you've got a full ownership, like what our we develop it, so it's normal sectional title. The only difference is the person occupying the unit needs to be 50 or older. Other than that, it's a normal property. But other retirement options is uh, uh, life right options, where you actually don't really own the unit, the the actual property. You you just buy the right to stay there until you pass away. Um, Now those type of, of retirement units are not suitable for investment. You cannot invest in them because you haven't got ownership. I think for any investor, whether you invest in the markets or in property, you need to do your own work. You need to know um, who your developer is, um, research him, he needs to be financially sound, he needs to have a good track record. Um, That in in my opinion is one of the main risks um, in property development. the developer himself so that you can be sure that the product that you get is delivered on the quality that you expect that you paid for on time um, and also your developer needs to back his own product he needs to advise you um, and guide you After the break, we'll be joined
2: by Rob Stefanuto, he's Managing Director for Dogon Group Properties.
1: Hello and welcome back to Hashtag Real Estate. This week, we are focusing on property development and in studio, we have Rob Stefanuto, Managing Director for Dogon Group Properties. Um, Rob, welcome to studio. Thank you so much for having me here today. Rob, as a start to our conversation, can you tell us about some of the trends um, as far as property development um, is concerned um, and around the millennials?
4: Well, the thing is that there's a misconception that millennials don't want to buy property, that they actually are looking for more experience than to buy property. That's not ideally true. You tend to find that um, they buy property later in the cycle and they're not so involved in buying the first time home. What they're looking for is to buy potentially um, what we would have called a second-time home. So they also have different needs from what you would have found with Generation X. You tend to find that um, they're not buying motor cars, They're using Uber. So things like parking in developments um, has not become so important to them. The space that they live in, they'd be happier to live in a smaller space, but it's got to be more tech. It's got to have... Um, better finishes. It's got to have something that means something. Also, the areas that they're looking in, they're not looking in traditional areas. A lot of them are looking
1: in um, emergent areas that we are doing. So now, I mean, um, looking at at that, is it not because from a property development point of view, I mean, um, it's an industry that requires a lot of um, industry expertise in terms of the market and construction as a whole, maybe that's why they Well, obviously the
4: developers need the expertise, but what we tend to find is that we have a much more educated consumer today. So they research a huge amount. Now, more than ever in the real estate business, the consumer actually has the ability to look as to what's available and to decide. And they are well-educated when they come and see us. What our job is to actually let them know why they're buying this, the benefits of buying it. Um, They're interested obviously in the growth. Development has a specific growth um, trend which is different to secondhand property. It has certain benefits and it um, also sets the barometer for the real estate market. So if you think about building a block of flats, Mm -hmm. the cost of building that block of flats at this moment in time is the actual cost that it costs us to build a square meter. So how much the bricks are, how much the concrete is, how much the steel is, how much the finance is, how much the artisans are that are building it. And it is that that will set the benchmark in terms of what that suburb um, will return on some of its other property.
1: Okay Robert um just a quick one I mean um you know being the the invest uh, the property industry yes. being about a uh, 7 trillion um industry so now for some of the trends that you've made mention I mean we're seeing a, a slow um transformation um space taking place that um I don't know from your trends analysis do you see a lot of um black property developers coming in women uh, uh, developers or even youth developers coming in the space
4: Absolutely so I'm actually consulting uh for um, a group that wants to come into Cape Town. We're seeing a lot of um, younger developers coming in. Um, They are looking to, and and what's interesting is they rejuvenate the industry because the the product that they want to produce is aimed and targeted at different markets. So we're seeing things that we haven't seen before. Um, And we have to adjust what we're doing in, in accordance with that. Also, um, you know, as we're getting a bigger black middle class that wants certain um, types of property, we've got to accommodate that. And um, traditional homes uh, don't fulfil that role, so the development industry is where people are turning to.
2: Mm. You say um, a lot of the, the the millennials are doing things differently, so they've got different needs from the the various buildings that that they acquire. How is this impacting the the development um, in property development industry, specifically in terms of the product um, that um, developers are putting out there or have to put out there as a result? We've changed
4: a lot. So one of the benefits of the property development industry is, depending on where the market is. So a lot of people might say the market's soft at the moment. That's not ideally true. Um, we're busy with a project in Cape Town called One on Albert, where we are doing the first sets of micro units. Now, these micro units are 21 to 25 square meters. And um, we went to Nedbank and we said, look, we want to do this as an affordable housing package because if you look at the city center of Cape Town, you can only buy something at like 2 million rands. But we're going to offer this at 899 to a million one. And the mortgage repayment on that is between 8 to 9,000, 10,000 a month. So suddenly, instead of renting a property, they're able to buy something, even though it's very small. And they, and inside this property, you've got very high-speed fibre. Everything's built in. You can literally arrive with your sheets and your bags and move in. We give you a smeg kettle, we give you smeg toaster. We put in um, all the best appliances, and it's in Woodstock. Now, Woodstock traditionally is an emergent market, yet it's only a kilometre and a half from the city. So, if you work, we looked at. Who worked in that area? We saw a lot of the advertising agencies, the design agencies, um, and we realised that they had people working early in their careers, the twenty-five to thirty thousand rand a month bracket, and we tailored the finance for this product um, absolutely for them. We got a special deal out of Nedbank for them, and <laughs> we found that this was incredibly successful because they didn't. They had the option to buy but they didn't have to buy anything that they didn't need so they were able to get into the market the beauty about a product like this and this is where trending is so important to understand what's going on if you bought that from for a million rands from us and you then sold it on let's say down the line to buy your second property at maybe one and a half million rands you would pay no capital gain because it's a primary residence and it falls within the 2 million rand allotment. Also, on the 1.5 million rands, your transfer duty is in the very low side. So there's very little leakage, and it gives that first-time homeowner um, the opportunity to really make some money and move on into something in three, four years without having been in that rental space for that period.
2: All so right, uh, let's hit pause in the conversation. Uh, do join us on the other side of this. Welcome back to Hashtag Real Estate. If you've just joined us, we're taking a look at investing in property developments. And with us in studio is Rob Stefanuto. He's Managing Director for the Dogon Group um, Properties. Uh, so, Rob, uh, we're talking just before the, the breaker. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, there is a view currently that the, the, the market is soft and you don't necessarily um, hold the same line of thinking. The market
4: is still moving. It's not what it was in maybe 2016, 2017, but it's still moving. The the reality of the situation is that, let's call it a slightly softer market, you have the opportunity as an investor to get into it. Now, one of the things we find with development is it's it's an inflationary driven business. So, to put it simply, let's say we're building something today and we're gonna sell it for 40,000 rands a square meter, okay? Now, if you buy it today at 40,000 rands a square meter, and it takes the developer two years to build it, by the time you receive that apartment, based on inflation and what's going on in the construction industry, you effectively are getting something that is now potentially worth 50 or 52,000 rands a square meter. And it's a very logical um, assumption or concept. Let's just talk about petrol as an answer or diesel. So imagine building a building. Now you've got to move all the bricks, the concrete, the steel. The artisans need to come in. All of that has to arrive on trucks. Now the cost of fuel to get it to site has just gone up 30%, 40%. All the imported aspects of that building that are paid for in hard currency are going up taps, electronic systems, tiles, anything like that. So the reality of it is, when you buy something off plan as a de- from a developer, and it's not every developer, you've got to obviously research the market well. You're buying something at today's price to take delivery in two years' time. And you buy off a drawing, or a 3D rendering, when you stand in that, it's a very different thing from when you're just looking at it on a piece of paper. And it has an intrinsically higher value. Now, I don't say that every investor should run into the market and buy hundreds of units. You, you should very seriously look at what your portfolio is, what appetite you have for it, and then you should have a look at which banks are willing to finance it. So when we're doing a development, the banks – What they will do is they will each take a portion of it for mortgages. Now, if all the banks are on board, you know that that's a good development and that is what you want to be going after. It is undoubtable that the cost of construction, I'll give you an example. We were doing a building in 2015. It was costing 11,500 rands a square to build. By the time we finished, it was costing 18,500 rands a square to build. By the time we build the next one, it'll be costing 22000 It's just a function of inflation and the fact that certain things have changed. And every, well, especially in Cape Town, every time we develop, we use up another site. So we are tearing down older buildings to put up newer buildings. Now, with the new heritage laws in Cape Town, you can't just tear down every building. Mm-hmm. So you're tending that we are looking at buildings built in the 60s and 70s, you know, and... Um, a lot of the available sites are no longer available. So there's a limited amount of development that can continue to happen in that particular city.
1: Mm. So now, I mean, what are some of the uh, the best coasts? Obviously, those are regarded heritage sites. You beg your pardon? Um, those are regarded heritage sites. Yes. Um, so obviously, with heritage sites, there's only limitations that you're able to, um, to tear it apart. Let's say I'm an investor. There's someone watching who's an investor buys a site. It doesn't know it's a heritage site. Um, so now they need to be doing the demolition, and they realize that they can't. What are some of the risks that are around some of these developments and investments?
4: OK, so um, before anyone should invest in a development, um, As either someone who's just buying a unit or a developer, there's a huge amount of research that goes into it. Um, You would need to um, get specialists in that deal with heritage because there are a lot... and, And when we talk about heritage, we're not talking potentially about buildings that are hundreds of years old. For instance, in Cape Town, there's the second largest amount of art deco buildings in the world next to Miami. Now, a lot of those buildings were lost yet they were built probably in the 30s and 40s. So now Heritage has said anything over 60 years, we want to check whether we can have that building demolished because there may be a value, there may be an architect, there may be a design that that might be the last one or that has specific value um, that they want to retain in terms of that. Durban as well has a lot of um, deco buildings. So... All of that is part of the research process when you are going to develop or buy a development for that matter.
2: Yeah. And and is it is it a um, considered a strategy and for, for an investor out there? Um, I know you said um, you, know, you, you, you buy a property at today's price only to take delivery um, in two years. So do you have in- investors who go out and say, right, um, there's a development going up um, at uh, this particular area, I'm going in for two units with the intention to offload those in the, t- in the next t- uh, two years?
4: Well, true property um, wealth creation is not created through flipping units. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's two types of investors in the market. There's the investor that buys and holds. Now, he will be buying that on a geared basis, putting down a deposit or potentially um, quite a substantial cash amount. And he will be looking then to tenant that property through its lifespan. And the things that he would be looking for, um, he'll have, a, like, when I invest, I've got a profile of property that I buy. I understand that that works in my portfolio. Now, someone might buy two bedrooms or they might buy um, one bedroom st- or studios or whatever it is. So he potentially will be looking for what is a very cost-effective unit inside the development. So when we cost a development, when the developer comes to us and we're consulting, we look at a big set of plans and um, they effectively say, what, is it, what can you sell it for? We will initially do what is known as a spread costing where we will go and we'll cost the whole building on a square meter rate. We'll then break it down per floor and we'll say that's a particularly nice unit because that particular unit, if you look, if you look at the orientation of that unit, that's looking right at Robin Island. So that has an intrinsically higher value. So then we'll adjust that value. We'll adjust. There are often units that are bad. What happens is they're small units or they're dark or they're whatever. We tend to find that a lot of people buy these units because we discount the the um, square meter rate on it. So they're great for tenants. Um, the guys that want to flip units, they want to buy the best units because when they're finished and you walk into them, they're amazing. But guys that are building portfolios, we tend to buy, buy a lot of more economic units, units that they're going, well, this unit's 1 million rents, as an example, and I can put a tenant in at 8,000. This unit's 1.4 million. I can put a tenant in at 9,000, I'll take the million rand unit. So, you know, the astute investor is most certainly knowing what the reason for investing. And um, I have several clients that um, over the years we've built portfolios for. They've come to us, they've bought one unit. We've showed them how that performs. We've then advised them that we're doing another development. So we have quite a large portfolio of regular investors that are actually buying from us all the time um, and actually expanding
1: their portfolios. Mm. No, thank you, Rob, for joining us and sharing that um, good insight with us. Thank you, guys.
2: And that's it for today's episode of Hashtag Real Estate for myself, Samay, and as well as my co-host, Toboko. Till next time, goodbye.
5: Welcome to you, Your Money, I'm Brian Hirsch and this evening in our short term slot I'll be concentrating on the short term Ombudsman's Office. More and more countries are realising the importance of establishing proper mechanisms for handling complaints within both long and short term financial institutions. Over the years establishing proper external and third party recourse systems have now been established and recently The Office for the Ombudsman for Financial Service Advisors released a report for the 2017 2018 financial year relating to claims clawed back on behalf of consumers. The amount is in excess of 60 million, with short term insurance remaining the most complained about. Although the complaints numbers have dropped off slightly from last year from 10,846 to 10,211. Short-term insurance companies' complaints amounted to 3,243. I wonder what the number would have been, as I'm sure that many are not aware of their rights when a claim is repudiated. Joining me this evening is Adit Xerri-McKinnon, the Deputy Ombudsman at the Office of the Ombudsman for Short-Term Insurance, and Craig Poga, Director of the Poga Group. Adit, Craig, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Mark. The point I made there. did I get those numbers wrong? Is, is it 10,000 short-term claim complaints that you dealt with in this year? Last year. Last year.
6: This year we're still waiting to for the last few months, but our numbers are up um, year-to-date on the number of complaints received. Uh,
5: do, do you think the complaints would be even more if consumers knew of your office?
6: Absolutely. So our budget in terms of Putting our name out there and making people aware is very small. We're a non-profit company. Um, but we believe under the new regulations and under the new Act, the Financial Services um, Regulations Act, our exposure will be great as well as that of other ombuds schemes. So we do anticipate increased numbers of complaints.
5: Craig, the role of a broker is to be, be the, the intermediate between the claimant and the insurance company. Are you finding insurance companies Sticking more to policy wordings, is it become harder? Are they becoming harder on consumers, applying a lot more of the conditions attached to policies?
7: Brian, I think it's always been tough for quite some time. Yes, the insurance companies have made it difficult in that they have become tougher from an underwriting point of view. Insurers are doing a lot more surveys in the market, uh, looking at mitigating risk a lot better. Also, there's a lot of awareness. Consumers are aware of their rights in terms of going to the Ombuds Office. So it's all healthy for the industry in that there is an independent office for the policyholder to go to. And it also for the insurance companies to have internal processes to avoid it also going to, to the ombuds office is also very important for an insurer. But yes, I think that the insurance companies have taken a tougher stance. More on the underwriting in terms of making sure that the risk that they're actually insuring or taking on is in line with what's been disclosed from the, from the insured point of
5: view. Indeed, what, what, do you, what do you think are the important factors that consumers should know, firstly to try and ensure that when they have a claim that the underwriting is done at date of taking out the policy rather than underwriting at time of claim?
6: So an interesting trend that we see in our office is that um, those consumers that come to us directly, in other words those consumers that have purchased their products directly from insurers without the assistance of a broker or intermediary are the ones that are complaining the most. And it's the way in which the policies are sold, Um, most of them telephonically, so there isn't an opportunity to listen to questions carefully over the phone and also apply your mind to the answers. So a lot of consumers get caught up when it comes to claims and insurers discover that they've misrepresented or not disclosed material information.
5: I think that's an important word, material. Because consumers Absolutely. don't always know what is material or what isn't material. And to get that out of the consumer, you know, I mean, you asked me, have, have I had claims? You, you sometimes forget, you don't do it intentionally. You just forget that maybe I had a windscreen claim or there was a small bump on the car or even something that I, I, I lost, which I never even claimed for. Because isn't that also great in a responsibility of the insured to even report claims where they don't submit a claim? Mm.
7: Absolutely, Brian. And there, that's the need for a broker to assist the policyholder in working out what is non-material and what is material. Some underwriters, insurance companies are looking for three years claims history, others are looking for five years claims history. So it's up to the broker, together with the policyholder, making sure that there is full material disclosure in terms of risk, in terms of previous claims, and as you mentioned, let the broker assist in saying what is material versus non-material. Don't assume because at claim stage, now the current you know the underwriters may ask for all that at claim stage, which you don't really want to do. And as you correctly said, you want to do it on inception uh, from the policy.
5: Well, we're going to take a short break. I've got good news for those who are watching the programme tonight. Our lines seem to be working this evening. You can call me on 011 484 0468. You can ask my panel any questions you may have. Please stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. come back to your new money this evening we're discussing short-term insurance my guests are Deet Taxiria mckinnon the Deputy Ombudsman at the Office for the Ombudsman for Short-Term Insurance and Craig Poga, Director of the Poga Group if you'd like to call us yeah our numbers are working 011 484 0468 you can also email me on brian at bdtv.co.za and I will get to the emails in a moment but let's just talk about categories. Where do most of your of the complaints fall? Are there certain categories where more fall in than others?
6: So we see and deal with most complaints in the motor vehicle insurance sector, and they're a lot to do with misrepresentation and non-disclosure.
5: Craig, you, 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 there again, coming in from your side to ensure sure. that that the claim gets settled and doesn't end up in the
7: Motor sounds right in that motor, you have named drivers, unnamed drivers, excesses, applicable. There's a whole host of variables that the underwriters use to work out a premium on a motor vehicle. And I'd imagine that would, you know, if non-disclosure takes into effect. You've got an 18 year old driver, but the car's now insured on the policy for an older driver, not the normal regular driver. So all those variables come into play. But again, I think that's what's important is the policyholder understanding the policy as best as they can together with the broker. Burglar bars, alarm warranties, safe warranties on the policy, all these underwriting criteria that the insurance companies impose on the policyholder, making the, the policyholder aware and accounting for and making sure that they understand the policy
5: as best as they can. That would make your life a lot easier, wouldn't it? Well.
6: Most of the complaints in our office are not assisted, or the complainants do not have a broker it's as I said, direct marketing, so there's a huge problem with contracts concluded telephonically. It did you tell me at at what
5: stage do you actually start to open up a file? Insured gets has a claim claim is repudiated broker does its best to get it paid do you Do you inform the insurance company before you really start your investigation that a claim has been lodged and perhaps they should re-look at the claim before you start doing all the paperwork?
6: So we'll open a file immediately on getting a complaint Uh, whether it's in the form of um, an application form or an email that gets sent to us. As long as there's sufficient information, we'll open a complaint, but we do send it to the insurer, and the insurer is given an opportunity to try and resolve that complaint directly with the consumer. There's a time limit. If they don't, then they must address the complaint fully, and then we'll we'll investigate.
5: Well, let's take a few emails. Jacqueline Benoni says, please explain the difference between the phase Ombuds and your office.
6: So we deal with um, the insurance companies, the short term insurers, phase deals with advice issues and brokers intermediaries. And tell me something,
5: how often do you find that a claim is brought to you because a short term insurance company is repudiated and yet a broker is involved, then do you actually have the responsibility of reporting that to the phase ombuds that in this case the insured is not being settled because the broker gave um, the correct, incorrect advice?
6: So. Our mandate will be restricted to making a finding with regards to the conduct of the insurer. Once we finalise that and we see that there is an issue with the broker, um, we will advise the complainant that they need to go to the phase Ombudsman to investigate that aspect. We make no finding with regards to the broker intermediary, it does not fall within our jurisdiction.
5: I'm sure Diet would be interested in this question, Craig, and you, you may not have the numbers that you... What, what percentage of claims do you have difficulties with insurers? And any idea, percentage of claims that you just can't sort out and does end up at the Office?
7: So Brian, obviously it depends on the, the broker. I mean, from a percentage point of view, I can't give no, you I'm a just, number. Uh, yeah. uh, but you know, there are, there are claims where you know, we'd like to engage with the insurer before it gets to the office mm. and, and work out because it's not in the insurer's interests um, or the policy holder. It's in no interest, the broker and the insurer's interest for it to go to the office. So. You know, we, we try and mitigate, we try and prevent or try and do whatever we
5: can and try to sort out the problem prior
7: to going to the office. But I can't give you a percentage no. or no, I, number a number No, it's a bit unfair.
5: I should have asked you, maybe asked you before you came on the programme, just to maybe t- give me some ideas. But it did tell me, um, Jack Pretoria says, do you only deal with short-term problems? I've had a disability claim repudiated because of a pre-existing conditions which I was not aware of. I was identified as an 11-year-old with having scoliosis whilst at school. I did not know, and now 45 years later, they're telling me that I never disclosed it. I don't suppose that falls within your ambit. um.
6: It's very technical. Um, If the policy is written on a short-term license by a short-term insurer, we do have jurisdiction. So there are lots of accidental injury um, claims that we look at, but those are written on a short-term license. Anything that's written on a long-term license would need to go to the long-term ombud.
5: Stephen in sentence says, is it fair that an insurance company has repudiated a motor vehicle claim because my debit order didn't go through? I renewed my credit card and did not realize that I needed to give insurers the new details. Craig, that must happen quite a lot today. It does happen often. Um, Obviously, there's communication with modern
7: technology today. There's SMSs, emails and all sorts of correspondence. Uh, The onus is on the insured to make sure that that premium gets debited. Um, also the, the insurer together with the broker will advise you and very often today the insurance company will do what you call a forced debit, so following a few working days after the month end you have the option alternatively a double debit. The, the, the insurance companies will not reject the claim or potentially they'll put it on hold until the premium is paid or up to date. And again it's up to the policyholder to also provide a substantiation
5: as to why the premium
7: uh, didn't go through. So, you know, th- th- that's important.
5: Did how do you deal with that? Um, where there's non-payment of premiums and there's an error in the bank and that type of thing. Do you have do a lot, do, do the, are those quite yes. a lot of claims coming through to you on that So notices? we
6: need to look at the law and policyholder protection rules where insurers need to give um, their policyholders 15 days grace period within which to pay. Um, if they haven't complied with that, then we will ask the insurer to um, entertain the claim. Um, So the law governs that situation quite nicely and yes, we see lots of cases where this has happened. Some we can't assist where they have been, as Craig says, reminders to the insured that they need to pay. If you don't pay, there is no cover. So it is something that really falls squarely on the insured.
5: I mean, consumers are struggling, aren't they? I mean, Absolutely. you know, and uh, with that in mind, you know, so often people don't re- always realise the debit's coming through. Maybe got paid a little bit late, but, and all those type of things. If
6: it's a bank error, then yeah. we will ask the insurer to uh, consider the claim. It's not the insured's fault.
5: And your and your experiences of that would us
6: they will abide. They will abide.
5: Uh, Rodney in Westcliff says, do you deal with many claims based on precedent with a standard reply, or does each complaint get investigated separately, investigated separately? So, in other words, have you got? To, I mean, this is a, this is a normal type of complaint. We've got we've got a set um, system.
6: No, each matter is assessed on its own merits. Well, Very that's you nice know, because
5: so. Craig, I mean, that's really what happens. I mean, you, when you have a claim like that, you've got to deal with every claim. Absolutely,
7: and, Absolutely. and I think that's the. The beauty of the office is that you can, and each claim does get assessed independently, uh, it gives comfort to the consumer, it's healthy for the whole industry, that you know each claim will be looked at at its
5: merits and taken into consideration. Okay, last email before we take our break, Derek Nilova says, can someone appeal against your rulings? Absolutely. And words, I mean, can insurers appeal against your rulings?
6: Both parties. Either party who's can, not happy with the decision uh, can go the escalation route right up to appeal and to the Appeal Tribunal, absolutely.
5: Well, we're going to take a break. You can call us. Our lines are working. 011 Give us a call. We stay tuned. We're back shortly. Welcome back, and if you just joined the program, this evening we're focusing on short term insurance. My guests are Edith Texera McKinnon and Craig Poger. Our lines will remain open. I apologise, I gave the number out, the incorrect number, when we went off air the last program 011 484 0468. I'll take calls and we'll also continue to answer the emails that have come in. Um, Arlene in sentences, says, according to the South African Insurance Association Code of Conduct 2014, all material information must be obtained by the short-term insurance provider at the time of underwriting and not at claim stage. If this is the case, why is this practice still taking place, Craig?
7: Sure, it's <laughs> a good question, Abraham. I'm not sure I can. Uh, well, you've, answer you've made the yes, point.
5: I mean, you've got to answer all the questions. And, and as I Adit says, there is a problem sometimes with direct insurance. And I mean, there's a place for direct insurance, but it's how you ask the questions and people understanding what is material and what isn't material would you say that is would you say that is cr- the crux when you're dealing direct
6: absolutely and it's also the questions asked um, so in at common law there's a general duty to disclose all material information by a policyholder. but when an insurer through direct marketing asks specific questions then the consumer is entitled in law to think that that's all the information the insurer wants and nothing else, so I don't have to disclose anything else. So we challenge insurers a lot on that point.
7: Craig and Brian, every insurer asks different questions Mm. um, and put it across differently. So it's very important to understand what the insurance companies are wanting to know from the policyholder. I mentioned earlier, some insurers want three years claims history, others want five years claims history. Is it claims that you've had? Claims that are not your fault, claims are all that's your fault. So all these things need to uh, be placed. And we mentioned proposal forms, various electronic forms. So it's so important to make sure that these
5: questions are put clear across that uh, the client understands what's been asked. Well, you're going to love this next one. Gareth in Randberg says, I recently bought a car on HP and done the insurance through the motor dealership there is a note that I must read and understand the policy conditions. Is this fair as it's pages of small print and how would I know what is covered and what isn't covered? So Brian, it's always a challenge. Policy protection rules, the, the wording has been made it
7: easier, uh, consumer friendly, a lot of insurers have invested lots of money to make sure that the, the policy itself is easier to understand. And, and But for us, uh, again, we remind our clients on renewal and when there's adjustments to policy we highlight the important things alarm warranties very important do you have burglar bars on your opening windows don't you have you informed your insurance company do you have a house potentially that's unoccupied all these different things are material they need to be put across to the
5: underwriter, failing which, in the event of a claim, it could result in a rejection or repudiation. Well, well I don't want to put the pharmaceutical companies out of business, but if you, instead of taking a sleeping tablet, just take a motor policy to bed with you, <laughs> and you, 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 you'll, you'll be asleep before you get through the first yeah, page. Yeah. Robert in rambus says, please explain two areas that confuse me. How do you feel about insurers repudiating claim because of late notification? And I will come to the second part of a moment. late notification.
6: So. Most policies have a time limit within which you as a policyholder can submit a claim. We will always ask the insurer to address us on prejudice. In other words, what prejudice has the insurer suffered as a result of the late notification? And unless the insurer can satisfy us that they have suffered actual prejudice, they will need to entertain the claim.
5: Because the only prejudice really could be an increase in cost. I mean, the matter you know, maybe the cost of parts have gone up, the rand is weakened, and imported parts. So the prejudice may be a small part of the claim.
6: Absolutely.
5: And I mean, I can understand insurance saying, okay, we're only prepared to pay X, not X plus. Or would you agree with that?
6: Yes, unless of course the insurance suspects fraud, in which case they have to prove it.
5: And then the second part: are many of your claims upheld? Uh, here we are. Are any of the claims upheld because they relate to fraud? Again, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Is it is
6: difficult, and the insurer bears the onus of proving that there is fraud. Unless they satisfy us on a balance of probabilities, which is a civil onus of proof, they, they won't succeed. But if they do show that there are elements of fraud, then we cannot assist consumers.
5: Craig, that's sometimes a difficult one for you, huh? When, when someone difficult. phones you and gives you information, and, you know, and, and you're relying on the information they give you, and you know that it's not... Uh, 100 percent it's a very puts you in a very difficult ambiguous position
7: it it does brian Uh, we rely on the insurers assessors out there today to to determine um you know obviously things like that we we rely heavily on on the professionals in the market to to look at these things we find that claims do occur but they are inflated, which is which is the same as fraudulent so Mm You know that's always on the rise unfortunately, uh, but insurance companies are working very closely with the assessors today to make sure that these things are restricted and, and, and try to be under control as best mm-hmm. as they can. Um, but it, it remains a challenge within the industry and, and again as a broker we
5: obviously rely on the insurers to, to look at that. Indeed, where insurance companies have repudiated a claim because there's been, they've inflated the mm-hmm. claim? How does your office deal with that? Do you automatically say overinflation is fraud and we can't entertain the claim?
6: If there's intention and it's clear that the um, policyholder intentionally inflated the claim, in other words claimed for items that were perhaps not stolen, then we can't assist. If it's a negligent um, inflation, then we will try and persuade the insurer to at least look at the balance of the claim.
5: You don't even come. You don't even resort to breaking insurers' arms, do you? No, <laughs> 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 Barry and Paul says, what impact, either directly or indirectly, does climate change put our insurance cover at risk? Great, it's a big subject on its own, isn't it? It's a massive subject on its own. Again, the insurance companies. Uh, are
7: making a big effort to understand weather conditions. They're using technology. If there's a storm on its way, they're sending all their policyholders, SMSs, emails, notifying them that the potential storm's are around. Mm. So they're investing a hell of a lot of time and energy into that.
5: So yeah, I think it's a it's a whole topic so, on yeah. its own. I think in the next pro- time we do short-term, we'll <laughs> certainly deal with that climate change. Over many years, the, the short-term Ombudsman's Office has certainly gained the confidence of the industry in its objectivity. Their approach to ensuring fairness to both the consumer and insurance company is well known. The importance of providing the public with an independent and partial forum for objective expeditious and informal resolution solves many disagreements. It also represents a substantial saving for the industry. I hope tonight's program has alerted many of our viewers to the way forward if they do have a problem with a short-term insurance claim. I'd like to thank Edith Craig for joining me this evening. It's important to note our program is to provide information and should we not be construed as advice. Next week's program will focus on health care and if you need to get hold of me my details will appear on the screen. I'd like to thank you for watching and good night.